This is In Conversation from Apple News. I'm Shamita Basu. Today, the true story of money, murder, and betrayal behind the movie Killers of the Flower Moon. The 19th century was a grim period for the Native American tribe, the Osage Nation. Between disease brought by European colonizers and forced displacement by the U.S. government, roughly 90 percent of the Osage people were wiped out. The survivors settled in Oklahoma. Then, at the turn of the century, something incredible happened. We struck oil. Striking oil was as good as striking gold. And the Osage wanted to be sure that this valuable resource wasn't taken away from them by white Americans. So they claimed their rights. We held our minerals in reserve for all of us. And that was divided to the surviving 2,229 Osages in 1906. That's Chief Jeffrey Standing Bear, the principal chief of the Osage Nation today. He says the Osage decided each member of the tribe should get an equal share of the oil royalties. That share was called a head right. Here's David Graham, who wrote the 2017 book about this history called Killers of the Flower Moon. These head rights were worth, you know, a fortune because it ensured you received a quarterly check. And a head right could not be bought or sold. A head right could only be inherited. Back then, the headright payments could amount to as much as $13,000 a year per person. In today's money, that's around $232,000. This made the Osage the richest people per capita in the world. And it also made them targets of a sinister and elaborate plot by white Americans. At least 60 Osage people were murdered or went missing during a period that became known as the Reign of Terror. These crimes, what they were, was inheritance schemes. And so they involved an extraordinary level of betrayal, of intimate betrayal. These were people who were marrying into families while systematically plotting to kill their loved ones. David Grant's book has now been adapted by Martin Scorsese for the big screen for Apple TV+. Killers of the Flower Moon is out now. It stars Lily Gladstone, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Robert De Niro. Most Osage don't live past 50. When these women die, with how Osage suffer from illness, you have to make it the head rights come to you. You see? I recently sat down with David Graham and Chief Jeffrey Standing Bear, who also served as a consultant on the movie. David started off by talking about one of the main characters at the center of this true story, Molly Burkhart. Molly Burkhart, who I always thought of as kind of the soul and the conscience of the book, and I think similarly is true of the movie. She was an Osage woman who was born in the 1880s, speaking Osage, practicing Osage traditions. She was then, as just a young girl, forcibly uprooted from her home and made to attend one of these missionary boarding schools where she was no longer allowed to speak the Osage language. And then within just a short span of time, because of oil money, she was living in a large house. She had servants, some of whom were white. And she had married a white settler named Ernest Burkhart, who had been her chauffeur, taking her around town. And Molly begins to be systematically targeted and her family uh, for their oil money. 
members of Molly's family began to mysteriously die. In 1918, her sister Minnie died of what was called a wasting illness, but was likely a poisoning. A few years later, Molly's sister Anna was found dead in a ravine. She'd been shot in the back of the head. Shortly after that, Molly's mother, Lizzie, died, also of suspected poisoning. And a few years later, Molly's sister Rita and her husband were killed when a bomb was set off in their home. With each family member's death, Molly and her husband, Ernest, inherited the head rights. Meanwhile, Molly herself was inexplicably getting sicker and sicker. In 1923, federal investigators started looking into these deaths, and they found what many Osage people had suspected, that Ernest's uncle, William K. Hale, was the mastermind behind the killing of many Osage people, including the deaths in Molly's family. He was the most powerful white settler in the county. He was known as the king of the Osage Hills, and he projected himself as a friend of the Osage. Hale coordinated with other white Oklahomans, including Molly's husband, Ernest, to murder her family and inherit her head rights. Molly Burkhart would discover that a person whom she had loved and whom she thought had loved her was somebody who was trying to kill her. Eventually, both Ernest and Hale were arrested and sentenced to life in prison. Years later, they were released on parole, and Ernest was pardoned for his crimes in 1966. For a long time, most people assumed that the story ended there. But decades later, David Gran stumbled upon a clue that suggested deception, betrayal, and murder on an even larger scale. When I began the book back in 2012, I had kind of assumed, based on the FBI's public theory, that this was uh, the Osage Reign of Terror was perpetrated by this singular evil figure, William K. Hale, and a couple of his henchmen, and that they were kind of responsible for everything. And I proceeded on that course. I mean, you know, I worked on the book for more than half a decade. And for over a year, I was kind of working under that kind of hypothesis. And then over time, meeting with people like the chief, meeting with other Osage elders, they began to tell me about these other suspicious deaths that were never investigated and that were not part of the Bureau's case, and also had no connection. This is really important. They had no connection to the mastermind who was caught. And then I spent a lot of time doing archival research, and I was out in Fort Worth, where they have this large branch of the National Archives, and I was doing research on the guardianship system. Yeah. Explain the guardianship system. Uh, so um, the U.S. government passed a policy imposing guardians on the Osage. And these guardians, these white guardians could suddenly tell an Osage, you know, how and dictate how you could spend your money. And the system was quite literally racist because it was based on the quantum of Osage blood. And so anyone who had who was more than a half-blooded or was a full-blooded Osage was deemed, quote-unquote, incompetent, as you will see in the film. Hmm. And then... Yeah, and that's a formal term that's being used. Yeah, yeah, incompetent, yeah. which is, just tells you everything, right? I mean, language speaks, right? It speaks volumes. Yeah. And I found a little booklet that covered a few years that detailed... All it was was basically a list of a guardian and whose Osages 
whose fortunes they had managed. Mm. And the only other word in this booklet was the word dead if one of the Osage had died. And I was looking through this booklet, I noticed that there was a guardian who had about five Osages whose fortunes that he had managed. And I noticed the word dead next to the first name, dead next to the second name, dead next to the third name, four fifth. I noticed another guardian who had about 12 Osages fortunes who he had managed, and there was about 50% mortality rate. And on and on it went. Mm. And undoubtedly, some of these deaths were of natural causes, but it defied any natural death rate. And I could find evidence in some of these cases of complaints of a poisoning, of a head right being stolen, of murder. And so I realized that this little booklet really contained the hints of this systematic, this broader systematic murder campaign. Really, this was less a story about who did it than who didn't do it. And it was about a culture of killing in which many people were perpetrating these crimes. Mm. You have doctors, as you will see in the film, who are administering poisons. You had morticians who would carefully ignore evidence of bullet wounds and just quickly dispose of bodies. You had lawmen and guardians and the most prominent businessmen in the community who were in on this. And you had many others who were complicit in their silence. Yeah. Chief, are there any stories that you want to add about this particular time in history, the reign of terror, and what it meant for the Osage Nation? Even after the convictions of William Hale, Ernest Burkhart, these people came back to live around the Osage. I've known Osage elders to me. There were elders at the time who said, yes, uh, oh, I knew William Hale. And they said, uh, we stood over there by that fence and talked after he got out of prison. Wow. So the effects were not only emotional from that time period into today in my time, but physical. Mm. And people like them are integrated into our community. I mean, you see the families at the post office, and uh, we have to decide— uh, like we all do, should the sins of the father lead to the punishment of their children and grandchildren? Mm -hmm. I don't think so. But you've got to, to understand uh, there's a deep history here and there's a, a mistrust. Over the years, you have these descendants still living in the community. And I think one of the things that is important to understand, because these were inheritance schemes, you not only have descendants of the murderers living in the same neighborhood to this day, you have to remember that you would have descendants who are living in the same household as the murderer and the victims. Imagine that. Mm. Well, now let's turn to talk about the film a little bit and how the story was adapted. I just want to hear from both of you your reactions to seeing the film. What have you thought about it? Well, when I first met Marty Scorsese, he said, uh, we're going to film here. and In he Oklahoma. Had, yes, here right among the Osage. Yeah. And uh, that had been a concern of ours because we had not received any guarantees from anyone, although we kept asking, where were they going to film and were they going to film here among the Osage? Mm. So uh, Marty Scorsese led uh, his introduction with that statement, that commitment, which immediately led to our offer to uh, have our language department and others work with his team. And then we have our culture people who could work with his team on traditional dress 
And they, they being the Scorsese team, embraced this opportunity. Our people, of course, uh, have the emotions of the movie, especially the younger people who are more modern, uh, didn't really read David's book. You know, kept telling them to. <laughs> but now they've seen the movie, a lot of them. They're going back and reading David's book, which is the proof of the story. Mm. It's a true story, and David's book shows that. I just wanted to jump in there, too, because, you know, the chief and I, once this got adapted, were obviously nervous about what an adaptation might look like. Uh, we had seen <laughs> film adaptations go horribly wrong. Sure. This was such a serious piece of history. I mean, this was something that was very painful for people to talk about and for the Osage elders to share their stories and entrust it with others. Non-Osages, I think, was unnerving. And it really was the chief who helped steer this process. I mean, the film people deserve enormous credit, but... Chief Standing Bear, very early on, appointed ambassadors to the film process to make sure that this direct communication happened, used their leverage in a really positive way to ensure that that film was shot on location. It meant that the people making the film were going to be immersed in the world of the Osage, in their culture, mm. in their traditions, meeting them, eating with them, seeing them, talking to them. And I think that really helped shape the story in a positive way. And I, at least for me, when I see the film, I think it has a real authenticity and truth. And it's because of that immersion. And it's because of what the chief did, and not just the chief, but all the people around him, to ensure that this film did not go awry. Yeah, I mean, Chief, are there any particular aspects of the film, aside from the great significance of the location, that you feel particularly proud to see? One of my favorite scenes is a council meeting where the Osage Council is debating what to do. And we are told by uh, those on the set that they wrapped up the filming of that scene and Marty steps out of the building because it's very hot in that filming time, 105 degrees or so. And uh, Robert De Niro said, hey, uh, they're still talking in there. And do you want to hear what this uh, one man has just said? Because And his name is Everett Waller. He's a traditional Osage, younger Osage. And uh, he uh, was in the moment. So Marty came back in there and heard part of whatever it was saying. And uh, he said, uh, can you repeat that? And Everett said, yes, I can. And, and you'll see where, where Everett speaks boldly and loudly and expresses the emotions of our people. When this money started coming, we should have known it came with something else because it's a white man's money. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not what we were taught coming down Missouri, mm -hmm. Arkansas, and Kansas. Yeah. What has come to our reservation that doesn't belong here, and it's them? Mm -hmm. They're like buzzards circling our people. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to pick us body clean, yeah. mm -hmm. leave nothing. And uh, we heard about this, about this scene, and and how natural it was to us. 
And I said, well, how was Everett doing it? And uh, one of my advisors said, oh, he was just playing Everett himself. <laughs> I, 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 had the, I had the privilege, actually. You know, I was only on set for a few days, but I was on set for that scene. It's one of my favorite scenes of the movie. It's so powerful. And Everett is just channeling a century or centuries of history as it comes out. And I, I had seen Everett. I knew Everett over the years. I'd seen him at events. I've seen him. He often gives the prayer to open. Uh, Everett is like both like Osage, old Osage warrior with John the Baptist kind of mix. I don't know, Chief, is that a fair description? I don't know. Um, but yes. he gives this, it, it was this improvised, it, it was improvised. And it was just so powerful. I think it's one of the most powerful scenes of the movie. And I too was told that, um, you know, uh, Scorsese heard the, this speech and said, oh, Let's put that in the film. Wow. It's nice to hear how how a scene like that can really transform through just a very real moment that gets recognized as something that shouldn't get lost. David, I understand that a lot of people have pointed out how the film really focuses on the relationship between Molly and Ernest in a way that your book doesn't necessarily. What do you make of that choice? Yeah. I think in some ways it gets made a little bit more of. It's my own view. I mean, it's a sweeping history, so you could develop in many ways. I think they made a very, very shrewd choice in focusing in on that relationship and that part of the story and developing it. And why do I say that? I say that because, one, I always thought of Molly Burkhardt as just an important conscious in this history. And also because what she is going through, and I think the chief could speak to this, is very representational. So you can take that one particular story and it can illuminate the larger history, illuminate the larger conspiracy, illuminate the levels of betrayal. And so I thought it was actually a really smart choice. And I think the other part that is important and why that relationship I always thought was very important is because Ernest Burkhart who is a very complicated figure, represents something very interesting uh, and, and an important part of that history because he is somebody who is not a sociopath. When you read the documents and you read the records, you know, he knows right from wrong. And yet he goes along with evil in the end. Mm. Understanding Ernest helps you understand the nature of complicity. And as I always try to point out, these crimes could not have taken place on the scale in which they did unless there were many Ernest Burkharts, unless there were many ordinary citizens who were willing to go along and be complicit in these crimes. And I always refer to them as the willing executioners. Mm. Chief, I've heard one of the one of the criticisms of the film is that people say, well, you know, this has a Martin Scorsese approach to it. Right. And what might this film have been if it were directed by a person who was Osage? And I wonder what you think is the answer to that. I mean, what 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 do you think would be different? Well, Martin Scorsese, I think, and from everything I've learned is the greatest living director on the planet. And there are a lot of Osages as extras and others in front of the camera, but there are a lot of Osages behind the camera in uh, set design, building. We have um, people involved very much in the language, as you'll see in the movie. What was that? 
Shomikasi. That's how you are. I don't know what you said, but it must have been Indian for handsome devil. <laughs> we have people working the details of our traditional clothes and our ceremonial practices. The late John Williams, my senior advisor, I assigned to sit right there on set. They gave him his own chair, said Mr. Williams. And John Williams was our gatekeeper. And if anybody had any questions about is this authentic or not, John, my senior advisor, would speak up to Marty Scorsese, and they listened. Mm. And he has all the credentials. He's a Vietnam veteran, combat veteran, Green Beret medic. He also was drum keeper at the Gray Horse Committee ceremonials. And he was, at the time this movie was made, the senior advisor from the Gray Horse District. Mm. So that's the legitimacy of this movie process. And I know John and Van Big Horse and I and some other Osages seen the screening last year, the first time we saw the movie. We had a chance there to make any criticism there was none. It, we were very impressed. But go back to your question. Is there a living Osage that can direct at the level of Martin Scorsese? The answer is no. But there is no one else of any nationality that I know of that could do it. Mm. Well, I want to end by asking each of you to share what you hope viewers will take away from this film? What do you hope the impact of the movie will be? I think for for me, um, you know, I, I first began this project, and Chief has heard me tell this story, but the origins of the project, which was when I visited the Osage Nation Museum back in 2012, and I saw this great photograph on the wall, which showed white settlers along with members of the Osage Nation, and it looked very innocent. and But a part of that photograph was missing. And I asked Catherine Redcorn, the museum director, why that part of that was missing. And she said it had contained this figure so frightening she had decided to remove it. And she then pointed at the missing panel and she said the devil was standing right there. But the part that was so even more powerful to me was that she then went down into the basement and she pulled up an image of that missing panel. And there, peering out very creepily from the corner with this little chapeau and glasses was William K. Hale, one of the killers mm -hmm. of the Osage, this man of so-called God-fearing souls. And he was the devil. And I was always haunted by that photograph because the Osage had removed the photograph, not to forget what had happened, but because they couldn't forget. And yet there were so many people like me who very you know, ridiculously had never been taught this history. And we had never learned it. I always say we had excised it not only from our consciousness, but also our conscience. And so... Mm. You know, I embarked on that project with the help of people like the chief and so many Osage in recording these stories to hopefully address my own ignorance and the ignorance of many others in this country and elsewhere. And so I know a film can reach even more people. And my hope is that we begin to fill in that gaping hole and we learn from it. And we learn not just about the past, but we also learn about the kind of people we want to be in the future. Mm -hmm. I would uh, add that... Uh, the Osage have a lot of healing to do, and 
I'm learning more about generational trauma, as they call it, as a subject on its own mm. that's related to so many other emotional issues, mental issues of, of people in general. And we have our own cause and effects. So I do know this movie's caused a discussion. And as I say, David, this none of this would have happened without your book. But this... Um, book and movie have uh, got a good discussion going at, at many levels because this is, as Martin Scorsese promised us when I said, how are you going to approach this movie? He said, I'm going to tell a story about trust and betrayal, and I'm going to tell it on two levels. The level of the Osage, trusting the outside world, and the betrayal of that trust and Molly trusting Ernest and being in love with him and the horrible betrayal of that trust. And he delivered. Killers of the Flower Moon is out in theaters now. You can also find David Grant's book by the same name on Apple Books. We'll include a link to it on our show notes page. And if you're enjoying this show, Apple News in Conversation, Please don't forget to follow us and leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. 